0: Coming up, tracking assets of the oligarchs, linking sources from multiple investigations and dirty money in the UK.
1: The way that oligarchs and their children are are seen in the West is that they're celebrities, that they're very successful businessmen. But I think, you know, the question that always, uh, you know, persists is basically where did their first million come from?
2: two different leaks having her in them and showing that she is actually moving vast amounts of money in suspicious ways. I don't think
3: we'd have had two economic crime bills by now had it not been for Vladimir Putin's invasion, illegal
0: invasion of the Ukraine. My name is Nick Wallace and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP as it's known. In this episode, we speak to Miranda Petrusic and Ilya Lazovsky, two OCCRP journalists who've been tracking Russian oligarchs, their wealth and their assets for years. This story is a clear example of how some investigations can happen completely coincidentally. In February 2022, a massive leak from one of the world's biggest private banks, Credit Suisse, exposed the hidden wealth of clients involved in money laundering, corruption and other serious crimes. While studying the data... Miranda came across a name she's never seen before, Saudat Nazieva. Carefully, Miranda and Ilya pieced together all the information they could find about her until they discovered she was the sister of one of the world's richest men, a Russian oligarch, Alisha Usmanov, who's been sanctioned since the invasion of Ukraine. Miranda and Ilya's investigation is part of a wider study which led to the creation of the OCCRP's Russian Asset Tracker an interactive web tool which links specific villas, yachts and other expensive toys like helicopters to the wealthy people who own them. I started by asking Miranda about her interest in the Eastern Europeans' super rich and how they control and move their wealth.
1: The way that oligarchs and their children are, are seen in the West is that they're celebrities, that they're very successful businessmen. They draw attention because they have so much money and such a display of wealth. But I think, you know, the question that always, uh, you know, persists is basically where did their first million come from? And as a journalist, for me, it's good to see that people are now asking this question and that they see billion- beyond the billions and the millions that these people have.
0: Tell me about Alisher Usmanov. Why is he so significant to you guys?
2: Well, to me, I would say, first of all, he is one of the major... I mean, he's one of the top 100 wealthiest people in the world. He's, um, you know, been said to be close to Putin. He has a bit of involvement in journalism in Russia because there was a business daily called Kommersant, which uh, was pretty highly respected. Russian publication, and he became its owner, this was years ago, and then there was a whole episode where the paper reported on election violations committed by the ruling party, and then he was fired. They're still active in Russia and publishing at a time like this, which means that they're towing the line, because the independent publications are not towing the line. So Usmanov is involved in that, which for us kind of feels very important and personal.
0: So how did he make his money after being fired?
2: Gazprom, you know, the Russian gas giant, or at least a large portion of his money. That wasn't the only thing he did by any means. So he's someone who is intertwined with this regime, even though he's not, you know, really in policy-making circles, as far as I'm aware. And it's a huge fortune. And it's really hard. I think we'll talk about that. It's really hard to get at that fortune and understand where it is, even once you were decided to sanction him.
0: Miranda, you talked about Usmanov's first millions, that basically he grew his wealth from selling off Russian assets and built them up into becoming one of the richest men in the world. But your article is something of a scoop, not just because it looked down into how you'd managed to connect some of his extraordinary array of companies, but the way he utilised people around him, particularly his sister. So tell us, Miranda, about putting that particular investigation together. How did it come about?
1: The story came about as, as an accident, really. I was in Barcelona with my colleagues as we were discussing the Credit Suisse investigation, And as I was going through the data, I saw a name and I saw that this person is listed as controlling 27 accounts. And some of these accounts at a certain point in time had over a billion on them. And of course I was shocked. I was like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Who is Mm -hmm. this woman? And I've never heard of her before. Saudat
0: Nazieva. Is that the right pronunciation? Saudat
1: Narzieva. Yes. Uh,
0: Nazieva. Okay, great. So, yeah. so, so this—you've never seen this name before.
1: I've never seen this name before. I've never heard of her before. It—it it came as a complete shock because, like a lot of these people with you know large amounts of money on their accounts, I knew about it because I've spent, you know, the past decade basically reporting in Central Asia, and I'm you know we we are all pretty familiar with all the important people there. And yet suddenly there's this woman and we are like, who is she? What kind of business does she have? And then we got even a bigger shock when we Googled her and it turned out to be a gynecologist from Uzbekistan. Right. (laughs) And you can imagine
0: (laughs) Right. So presumably they're not that well paid over there or certainly not enough to have billions of pounds in accounts under their control.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. So that came as a little bit of a shock. It was like, wow. And then and I remember I told it to, you know, other uh, reporters in the room and they were all like, wow, how is this possible? And then, you know, after we realized, you know, who she was, I was basically obsessed with figuring out, well, what these bank accounts are, you know, is this a a company bank account? Which company? What I was doing is we were basically googling the account number. And suddenly, one of them popped up in a files uh, that came in a different leak. This was a FinCEN files. So
0: just to interrupt for the listener, the FinCEN files are documents from the US Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN That have been leaked to BuzzFeed News and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in 2020, when the documents revealed how global banks were contributing to industrial scale money laundering. So, okay, you've got this unnamed woman in the Credit Suisse leak controlling 27 accounts and then.
1: Basically, one of those accounts showed up there, and it turned out to be an account that belonged to a company that is actually owned by Alisher Usmanov. And then once we knew this connection, it was obvious, well, you know, who is she? How is she related to him? And it turned out to be his sister.
2: And this is a kind of a rare case when you have sort of information coming from two very different sources, that sort of confirms because her name appeared in the Credit Suisse leak. You know, her name was listed with those Swiss bank accounts and in a totally separate leak of documents coming from a completely different source, her name appeared in connection with him again. And they showed her some of the money moving in suspicious ways. So it's sort of like this totally unknown person, as Miranda said, two different leaks having her in them and showing that she is actually moving vast amounts of money. And her brother is this world famous billionaire. And it just, it just, Goes to show you, you know, how when you're as big as Usmanov, you can move money all over and it actually will appear in different places. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's still easy to track down or to sanction it. But um, it is nice in this investigation. I really like how we were able to combine different, you know, this is kind of nerdy investigative journalism stuff. We were able to combine very different sources in one investigation to kind of get at the same theme.
0: And what's interesting about this is the denials that come from Alisha Usmanov about ever having transferred money to his sister for anything other than legitimate reasons. And yet they appear in things called suspicious activity reports, which are the documents that financial institutions and those associated with their business must file with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network whenever there's a suspected case of money laundering or fraud. So when does something go from being suspicious to potentially unlawful?
1: When it comes to suspicious activity reports, the banks are basically looking for certain signs of potential wrongdoing. So one of the signs can be that they see unusual, you know, large number transactions, which are all basically zero, zero, zero. So like clean, 5 million, 100,000, 200,000. That's not how the normal business transaction works. You usually have a bill and it's like, it's going to be, you know, 5,000 or 500,000, 339, you know, whatever. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be more than zeros in, in, in the bill. And then it's also, you know, who these transfers are made to. For example, other made to unknown entities the other made to you know people that when you basically google them, you cannot find an actual relationship with the person who is wiring the money. There was also another sister of Smanov, who also was receiving and sending money basically to you know from him and to him
2: and I think even uh you know as far as this explanation you know he's a generous wealthy man and he's generous to his sister and of course you know there's nothing illegal about giving money to your sister if you are a wealthy person. It's a separate question of, you know, how many villas one person needs. But um if you look at some of the transactions that are highlighted in these suspicious activity reports, there's stuff there that even a non-professional, you know, I'm not a financial analyst or, you know, accountant uh but you can see that this stuff is very questionable. You know, we've got uh, one report showing Alisher Osmanov transferring $3 million to his sister, and uh, it was just marked as a gift. And then a few months later, she sends 100000 back to him. And in the explanation, it says, to the brother for current expenses. So it's kind of int- like there's no way that she's helping her brother out with expenses because he is the multibillionaire. And why is he sending her money and she's sending money back to him? And in another case, he sent her money and then she sent it to her son-in-law who's the director of a steel company. So it's not it's clearly more than just, you know, a gift going on here. Uh, and of course, these are just these are just little pinpricks of information that we have about vast movements of money, most of which we probably will never see.
0: But they are forensic and you you, you do spell these out alongside denials from Usmanov saying that his sister had any possession or control of any accounts in Swiss banks on behalf of her brother. and And furthermore, that she's never had any formal or informal role in any of his businesses. And and yet the evidence seems to point in the other direction. And in fact, of course, when this article came out, it was before she was sanctioned. And shortly after this article was published, um, she was sanctioned by uh, uh, European world or Western governments, certainly, which which does suggest that they think at least (laughs) there's something suspicious going on here. I mean, you obviously have to be very careful about what conclusions you can draw from the evidence that that you're bringing out. But there's a pattern here, isn't there?
1: I mean, we see that there is a pattern and we see that even in his responses, Like if you think about the 600 million yacht that, you know, everybody in the world, uh, you know, knew it was his. And that turned out to belong to a trust that the beneficiaries are his sisters. So that basically shows you that, you know, the family members are very much connected to the business empires of the people. And very often they're the holders of
2: significant wealth. It doesn't mean that the sisters are going around deciding what to do with the money. It could just be that their names are held there. You know, as beneficiaries or as for whatever reason. So it's not that we can allege that they are personally deciding, you know, how that money will be moved around or what's going to happen to it. But, but their names do, do appear there. And even something like um, he's got an estate in England called Sutton Place, which is a historic estate in the countryside and it's a Tudor manor house. And You know, even if you look at the Wikipedia page of this estate, you'll see that Usmanov is the owner. There's no question, as with the yacht that bears his mother's name. And yet it's very hard to actually sanction these things once a government makes the decision to do so, because it's very hard to connect to him. Because it'll go back to that trust, which goes back to the, you know, families. Well, Another example, a helicopter that appears on that yacht. We made a goal in this project of trying to identify every asset that these various oligarchs own. And we we were looking at this helicopter and it was connected to some offshore company that we couldn't trace to him. The only reason we could trace it to him is because it kept sitting on his yacht.
0: I mean, I'm, I must admit, I'm, I'm having great fun looking at the Russian asset tracker as we speak, uh, which has informed me that the super yacht is called Dilbar. Is that right? The, the the mother's name?
2: Yes, that's his mother. Yes.
0: And it's actually a very smooth and, and, and fun website to have a play with. How how conscious and aware do you have to be that you you've got to tell an entertaining story when you're putting all this together?
2: I'm always thinking about the storytelling. You know, I often lead trainings for various investigative journalists on how do you actually tell a story that makes sense how do you make it not only interesting but how do you just make it coherent and have meaning you know you could list list companies and accounts all day but you know for an audience you know i want my buddy in the bar to understand my story you know i want my grandmother to understand my story you know you sometimes have to pull your head out of the spreadsheets and sort of ask yourself of all the thousands of pieces of data and li- lines of spreadsheets and documents I've read what is it that actually made me made my heart beat faster when I read it when you're writing the story of course you're only putting down on paper a tiny tiny fraction of all the information you find so you put in the information that conveys the facts but you remember those moments that made your heart beat faster and you make sure that those are what's stringing the story together and i think that's why you know, my collaboration with Miranda that's been going on for years now, I think has been so successful because between the two of us, we really have covered sort of all the sides of this that make both for something substantive, but also something that like has emotional impact and can convey to casual readers, non-expert readers, why this is important and why, why we are telling these stories in the first place.
1: I remember, you know, when we were covering the angle of Italian coast and basically all these properties, it was so fun to like watch a drone footage from the place. It, it's
2: such a rush when you see somebody's Facebook photo and there's like a corner of a building or like a certain outline of a mountain or a rock in the background, and then you match it with a drone that your, you know, drone footage that your colleague took or with a Google Map or something. It's, and it's really fun, you know, when these people are having, they're having so much fun posting their Dolce Gabbana outfits and their multiple villas. Um, so why not, why shouldn't we have some fun uh, connecting that to uh, their <laughs> offshore companies? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, you're going a bit mad, don't you? I, I, I picked up a journalist on uh, on Twitter the other day who I was interested in in, in the work that they were doing. And, and I, I got their profile photo up. The first thing I looked at was the building behind her <laughs> to see if I recognized it and where exactly that photo was meant to be taken.
2: Yeah, I think we're all becoming, uh, open source, open source investigators soon. So it'll be an interesting, interesting world. If you
1: have a collection of dresses that you would like somebody to identify, <laughs> <a significant> role, <laughs> I can see Dolce Gabbana prints in my dreams.
0: Yeah, I guess it's the untouchability of these people, isn't it? The 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 fact that even though Alicia Usmanov has, has been sanctioned. I'm sure he's still living a very nice life and the authorities in Germany can't even impound his super yacht named after his mother.
1: I mean, with the amount of money that these pe- kind of people have stashed offshore, I don't think we need to be worried about them being poor.
2: I mean, just as an example of that, you know, the villa, the villas that we found in Italy, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was six that we identified for sure as connected to Usmanov and he only owns one of them directly. His sister Gulbakhor owns another two and the rest are owned through various corporate structures. And our Italian colleagues actually did a whole separate investigation into some of the people who you know, provide the security, who provide the really secure internet access to this compound of villas. And there's a whole industry, lawyers and accountants and everybody else you can think of, who will set up companies for you, who will set up these bank accounts, who will um, move this money for you. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating industry that is, that's part of what makes these people so untouchable. This topic has been on the world agenda much more since the Panama Papers came out in 2015, and there have been repeated investigations since then. So I think the public understands this problem better than in the past, and there is more pressure. And whenever I've ever spoken with, you know, members of the European Parliament or anyone like that, they always say, you know, the thing that helps us the most keep this on the agenda and push for reforms is when there are more investigations uh, that come out.
0: Are, are the sanctions actually hurting, Ilya? I mean, uh, not just Aleister Ismanov and his family, but, but as a whole, do they make a difference to Putin's war effort?
2: Well, I think there's sort of a maybe somewhat naive view that kind of the oligarchs control Putin. And, you know, once you sanction the oligarchs, that'll cripple him. I think that Putin has effectively cleared the field at home to the only oligarchs that are left at home are those that are willing to not interfere, you know, with him politically. So it's not as far as the oligarchs specifically, I don't think it's so much about, you know, forcing Putin's hand in some way as it's about what we were just talking about, about making sure that the corruption they represent does not continue to infect or even, you know, exacerbate the corruption that we already find in our societies. As far as, you know, the whole separate question of sanctions on Russia itself, and whether that affects the war, um, I think it's a slow moving, I think the the Russian economy is accruing more and more damage. And uh, that's a slow process. And I think for, for Ukraine, it's not fast enough. But I think that in the long term, you know, this is clearly not going to be a short war. So the pressure hopefully will grow more and more on the Russian side relative to the Ukrainian side. So that time will be on Ukraine's side, essentially.
0: Yeah. Where, where, where do you see this going? I mean, what will Putin listen to?
2: Oh, boy, I, if I could answer that question, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, nobody really knows what can convince him because so far nothing has. I mean, I think his ability to wage the war has to be degraded. And that is affected by, you know, ability to import high tech components from the West and the ability to um, basically evade the technological sanctions that are in place. And I think that's another aspect of, you know, this work of when you have bank transactions where the true purpose isn't indicated, or ships where the true nation that, you know, is behind that ship, or the true cargo isn't being indicated, you know, that is corruption, but that also can lead to actual evasion of sanctions that are meant to stop the war machine.
0: Just just one final thought um, on the source of uh, a lot of this information coming from leaks, large-scale leaks, whether it be the Credit Suisse leak, the Panama Papers, the FinCEN files, whatever. Does this seem to be or have been a, a rash of them recently? Because they all come from quite mysterious sources. I mean, given that you wouldn't have been able to Pinpoint exactly Sadat's relationship with her brother without being able to triangulate from the various leaks that are coming on. Where do you see all that going? Do you see more and more people hacking into foreign states or foreign banks for for for, for political gain, or do you see more whistleblowers coming forward? I mean, how easy or hard is it getting to get information out there for someone who has a, a conscience about this or thinks it's a, a an important thing to do?
1: Oh, we definitely see in the golden age of leaks. And, you know, with the Russian invasion, one of the things we've noticed is that there, there have been so many attempts to hack different, uh, you know, governmental bodies and agencies in Russia and even, you know, companies in Russia. And so many new leaks have come that it's, it's almost impossible to keep up with them and basically, you know, go through them and figure out what the stories are there. So we can see that there's a more and more of that. And, and you know, I think whistleblowers have been encouraged by the Panama paper whistleblower. I think what, what is different is that the collaborations in the, in the media sphere have really shown the power of journalism and the power of how we can change the world if we work together. I think the global law enforcement, you know, there is like so much corruption. There is so much, you know, lack of interest sometimes to prosecute different powerful companies or individuals. That basically people are seeing that they need to turn to media to bring something to the attention of public. And we are seeing, in, you know, even, you know, individually people are reaching out to journalists and basically sending different documents, reports, confidential information that otherwise would not see the light of day.
2: And of course, leaks leaks can be very damaging as well, you know, if they're just released and without sort of a process of like working through them and making sure and double checking everything, making sure it's legitimate, you know, leaks can also be very powerful in a dangerous way. So I think there is a need for the media to play this kind of, no pun intended, mediating role of um, of interpreting the data and understanding it and applying professional standards of journalism to, yes, the leaks that are pouring, actually pouring out of all these secretive places.
0: just does feel like decent journalistic active cohort is a, is a functioning bellwether of a, of a democracy. But by the same time, it's also depressing that the law enforcement authorities are effectively delegating the job to journalists to do what they should be doing in the first place.
1: I mean, the, you know, the reality is that criminals are so clever. They hire so many experts. Some of the greatest minds are hired by criminals. And basically, they can come up with new ways to... You know, launder money, commit crime, then law enforcement can keep up.
2: And they pay a lot better than we get paid.
0: <laughs> OCCRP's Miranda Protrusich and Ilya Lazovsky. After my discussion with Miranda and Ilya, I spoke to the British Member of Parliament Kevin Hollinrake, who's launched a non-partisan economic crime manifesto aimed at stemming the flow of dirty money through the UK. The City of London has long been seen as a place where rich people with illegitimate wealth from all over the world can launder their cash or use it to buy assets and influence. Kevin joined forces with a senior opposition party member, Dame Margaret Hodge, to launch their economic crime manifesto. In a piece for the Times newspaper, Kevin said the UK has a $100 billion money laundering problem. I asked him if it were eradicated, what the consequences might be for the UK economy.
3: Well, frankly, I mean, I think that's probably the tip of the iceberg to be honest as well. I mean, there's a very assessment. Nobody really knows how big the problem is. But quite frankly, I don't care if it affects the UK economy or not. I don't want dirty money here. I don't think anybody else should want that money here. And I mean, we know the scale of the problem internationally, roughly. I mean, it's just frightening. The amount of money that's stolen from Africa by kleptocrats and uh, corrupt politicians is twice the amount of the international aid budget for Africa. You know, all this money's coming in, you can say it's coming in one end, but it's going back out the other uh, twice as fast. So I think whatever the benefits to the UK in terms of this dirty money, I don't care. We've got to clamp down on it. I do not think it will hurt the economy. I think our economy, one of the reasons people invest in the UK, is got a trusted system. And we observe the rule of law and property rights, and our courts are world-renowned. So I think for us to clean up our act, I think ultimately is a good thing. And the other thing about all this is, any dirty money, if the wider British public think that we're willing to countenance a system that kind of tacitly endorses a dirty money system, a dirty money within that system, I think they lose faith in the entire system. And that's really bad for the economy. It's really bad for politics. It's really bad for the UK PLC generally. The devastating consequences of dirty money, because we know this stuff funds all the most nefarious activities on the planet, be it drug dealing, be it people trafficking, be it terrorism, be it the destruction of states. Look at Russia. Their entire economy has been uh, torn apart by people st- stealing money out of their economy. And also it's funded, of course, then Putin's war efforts in Ukraine. So, well,
0: yeah, I mean, to what extent are we reaping what we sow when it comes to the war in Ukraine with the way that we've essentially welcomed a lot of Putin's cronies into the UK and their money?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we have played a part in it. I mean, there's no doubt. And we've done this for decades. It's a political point or it shouldn't be. You know, I think we thought, well, you know, Russian money, it's not to us to decide whether that money is is ill-gotten or not and some of it won't be and it's very difficult I think for anybody to say well okay that money has been stolen or that money has been extorted or whatever else it is if it's in in a foreign jurisdiction but nevertheless I think we know so much more now about the whole Russian system there's
0: time to act. What's the difference then between the Economic Crime Act and the more recent Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act? How much further does it go and how much more effective could it be?
3: Well, it goes a fair bit further. It does some things we all want. It does uh, particularly around uh, transparency over companies. So we know the loss of money is moved around the world by using shell companies, Uh, just companies that are layered, like like one of those Russian dolls, you know, the layers upon layers upon layers, and the money is hidden in these companies. The actual ownership of those companies is uncertain. So it means you can move money around, dirty money. Money's no good if you can't spend it. And dirty money, actually, because of money laundering rules, it's more difficult to spend. So they you need they have to clean it up. If you're unsure how this stuff works, just watch a program on Netflix called Ozark, which explains exactly what all this is about. A good
0: drama, that, yeah.
3: Fantastic. But it really is an eye opener in terms of how the world of money laundering works and what it's there for. So here you need to hide the money, you put you use this... These shell vehicles, um, but also you need a, a advisors and a regime that kind of facilitates it. And the UK does that pretty successfully for a number of reasons. A, it's got huge expertise here in terms of financial services. It's got these the ease of setting up corporate vehicles, and it's got it's got all these crown dependencies and overseas territories where you pay very little tax if you move your money into them. So if you steal a lot of money, you don't want to pay tax. Uh, on that money, so a you don't want to be tracked that money to be tracked, and b you don't want to pay a tax on it. So we kind of make the perfect destination to launder the money through the UK from foreign jurisdictions and indeed from the UK itself out in into other jurisdictions, uh, tax-free jurisdictions, and then that money can be spent on yachts, villas, whatever else these rich people want to spend it on.
0: What is the one thing you would do if you had the opportunity that would change things at a stroke?
3: if I can say two things. Number one thing is what we know happens and uh, there's some phenomenal examples of this where, I mean, Dansky Bank is, is a case you'll be aware of but there was a money laundering of around 200 billion pounds through Dansky Bank.
0: This is a Danish operation, uh, isn't it?
3: A Danish operation. Money coming out of Russia out through these Danish banks into the, you know, the money comes out clean and then can be spent. 200 billion pounds. Now, you cannot tell me that somebody within Dansky Bank didn't know what was going on at a senior level. It went through a relatively small outpost of Dansky Bank. Um, I think actually it was in Estonia, the actual bank that was uh, the branch that dealt with this. And you could see that that bank made huge profits in, in Estonia. So somebody knew about this and they could, and they, when they knew about it, instead of just turning a blind eye and, and taking the money, because the banks make a huge amount of money out of this. They should have reported it and they should have stopped it. What I think we need is a failure to prevent offence. If you should have reasonably understood what was going on in your bank and you're at a senior level, then you personally are held to account and you personally can go to jail. So this is personal liability, which some people, some executives, it'll send shivers up their spine, quite rightly. Um, And when we did this in the construction sector, in the UK in the 1970s, 1974, Health and Safety at Work Act. And suddenly it made directors personally responsible if they didn't at least try to prevent accidents in the workplace. So put it, giving hard hats out, putting you know like, uh, proper shoes and signage up and all this kind of stuff. And at workplace accidents, serious accidents, in the following year dropped by 90%. So you need personal culpability so they personally can have their collars felt and go to jail if they don't do the right thing. That's the number one thing, number two thing is the regulators and and enforcement agencies will always be always be playing catch up because this stuff happens. nobody goes around talking about this when it's happening, but some people are willing to and they're called whistleblowers so these are people in organizations who have spot something that's going wrong. they're within the organization, and this is what happened at Danske Bank just a very kind of middle level branch manager saw all this going on, blew the whistle on it. And this goal came to light. So we should protect whistleblowers um, more effectively and we should compensate them for any loss they experience as a result of blowing the whistle.
0: What authority or what global authority is there to leverage fines on rogue institutions? Is there enough enforcement and coordinated enforcement by the likes of America, the EU, the UK to actually ensure that uh, banks do toe the line when it comes to examining where their money's come from?
3: Well, no. I mean, the short answer is no. It's all done at a, 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 at a national level. In the U- US, which are far more successful than we are at this, uh, it's a combination of the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, regulate banks, and, um, and Department of Justice. So they work together very well and, and they're very well resourced. So they, they are, even per capita, I think their f- level of fines is something nine times higher than the, the fines in the UK, despite very similar offences going on in both. Uh, jurisdictions both nations so in the so there needs to be more joined up working and thinking but also fundamentally i think it's absolutely we've got to get right here in the uk which we haven't got right is the resources for our enforcement agencies which are woefully underfunded woefully so it, the serious fraud office has a terrible record in terms of prosecuting any any kind of financial crime we need more joined up thinking within the uk and more resources to tackle financial crime. I mean, just generally across the UK, financial crime makes up about 40% of all crime, yet it get attracts less than 1% of the resources. There's a fundamental mismatch in terms of the scale of the problem and
0: the scale of the resource. Does not looking too closely at these institutions serve independent territories or large jurisdictions? It doesn't seem like it.
3: Oh, Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, I think actually the situation is improving. So we are, and I think Putin's helped drive our agenda forward. We, I don't think we'd have had two economic crime bills by now had it not been for Vladimir Putin's invasion, illegal invasion of the Ukraine. But I mean, one thing we, we always come up against in politics and, and vast majority of people in politics are trying to do the right thing and try to improve things. But you come across, come up across, across vested interest time and time again. And that can be certain sectors. It can be the financial services sector. Uh, it could also be, you know, international uh, issues such as crown dependencies and overseas territories. You know, we like them to stay part of uh, the UK family, but you know, if, so if we're too heavy-handed with them, they say, right, we'll go independent, we'll please ourselves. You know, and they resist it, of course. And the, so all these powerful influences. And we should be proud of the, of the city of London and the financial services sector in the UK. But it's very, very powerful. If he doesn't like something, it pushes back and the Treasury listens. So, you know, the Treasury does have a mandate to make sure the the, the, you know, the wheels keep turning and the music keeps playing in terms of the economy. And it's bound to worry about anything. The banks come along and say, oh, my God, we'll, we'll stop lending. We'll stop doing this. We'll, we'll We'll take our headquarters abroad. And you can understand why people take those threats seriously. But... We can't let that deter us from doing the right thing. How effective
0: do you think sanctions have been?
3: Effective to some extent. I mean, uh, Usmanov, what he, I think his villa, one of his villas uh, in a very nice part of Europe has actually been uh, impounded, although it's frozen not taken off him, of course, which is another very difficult conversation we need to have to try and find ways of actually stripping these assets and then redistributing them. So it has had some effect, but we need to go much further. One thing I would really like to do, which I think could help unlock a lot of this, is I think, so you can sanction an individual it makes you feel good, but actually if you don't know where their assets are, it's pretty pointless. So you've got to be able to follow the money. So I think what should happen is if we... Uh, If somebody's sanctioned, any UK organisation that's dealt with that individual should have to open their books to the enforcement agencies. So they should have to say, "Okay, those are all the dealings we've had with Mr. Usmanov over the last 20 years. And then the authorities have got something to go on and they can look and track this money. So it's not just a case of catch me if you can. You've got some actual evidence of how to track this money down, which two benefits. A, you can find the money. Also, you can find the origins of the money to find out if it's been stolen or ill-gotten by other means. And then you can potentially confiscate it off them completely and say, use it to pay reparations to ukraine for example
0: to what extent do you think there is appetite within the british government at the very least to really tackle this perhaps in the light of the ukraine war but perhaps just because it's the right thing to do because this has been going on for well over a decade hasn't it the, the issue of offshoring money and, and, and lack of transparency
3: yeah i mean and we have made progress but and i think there is appetite but it always comes up against a vested interest so we've got a we can't let that deter us from doing the right thing.
0: The British MP Kevin Hollinrake finishing this episode for us. My thanks to him and to Miranda Petrushich and Ilya Lazovsky for their time. We tried to reach Alisha Usmanov, his sisters Saudat Nazieva and Gulbakor Ismailuva and his son-in-law Shukruk Nazir Kujaev to ask them about the allegations in the podcast, but none of them responded to our emails. Saudat Nazieva's spokesperson responded to the OCCRP saying that she doesn't recall the specific details of these transactions, as they were many years ago. Nor does she know why a suspicious activity report was sent to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. When asked about these transactions, an Usmanov representative previously denied that Mr. Usmanov has ever distributed his wealth amongst his relatives in order to conceal it from any government's and said that this allegation is baseless and unsubstantiated. In December 2022, Danske Bank reached final coordinated resolution with the US Department of Justice, the US Securities and Exchange Commission and the Danish Special Crime Unit following the investigation into failings and misconduct related to the non-resident portfolio at Danske Bank's former Estonia branch. They stated... We offer our unreserved apology and take full responsibility for the unacceptable failures and misconduct of the past, which have no place at Danske Bank today. We've learned from our mistakes and we've taken the steps necessary to ensure that Danske Bank has robust measures in place to do everything possible to prevent these failures taking place again. That statement came from Martin Blessing, Chairman of the Board of Directors. We contacted Credit Suisse and put to them the allegations in this podcast. They said... As a matter of law, Credit Suisse cannot comment on potential client relationships, including closed relationships. Credit Suisse is committed to operating its business in strict compliance with all applicable laws, rules, and regulations within the markets in which it operates. And we have stringent control mechanisms in place to combat financial crime-related activities with a series of significant measures taken over the last decade in line with financial market reforms. Our strategy puts risk management At the very core of our business. If you want to read the OCCRP report into Alisha Usmanov and his sister, Saudat Nazieva, or you want to play with the OCCRP's Russian asset tracker, head to the OCCRP website and search Alisha Usmanov. The specific piece we discussed in this episode is called Sanctioning an Oligarch is Not So Easy Why the Money Trail of Alisha Usmanov, one of Russia's wealthiest men, is difficult to follow. Thank you for listening to Dirty Deeds. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and give us a rating. This will help us bring these important stories to more people and make a better podcast for you. If you want to continue to hear incredible stories from OCCRP journalists and about the work they do, be sure to follow this podcast on your chosen podcast platform. That way, you won't miss future episodes and series. You can support the difficult and often treacherous work OCCRP journalists do so they can continue to expose the corruption and crime that would otherwise go unseen and unheard. To donate to the OCCRP, please go to occrp.org/donate. Dirty Deeds: Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley, with research by Phoebe Adler Ryan and Riam Musa at Rethink Audio. And check out the growing number of OCCRP podcasts, which you can find on your favorite podcast platform. My name is Nick Wallace and this has been a Little Gem production for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project.